It's good to be with you this morning. I'm with you this morning because I wore my mask the Saturday before last. So a week ago Saturday, I was with a group of guys, and we were having dinner together. And it turned out later that one of these guys was infected with the COVID, which was very scary. So I went and got my test and followed the CDC procedures. But it really was wearing the mask in the presence of each other, using the hand sanitizer after we had touched each other that uh, allowed me to be uh, COVID-free today and to be uh, with you. So I would encourage you to continue to bear with this, uh, these miserable masks and all of these procedures. They're not going to be forever, and they do work. And they're, and they're allowing us to worship together. Okay. We have been very intentional here at Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church about being as open as possible to as many as possible. We opened our doors immediately when uh, we could do so without, uh, uh, interfering with, uh, the public directives. And we've done that because we believe that it's important to be in the house of the Lord with each other. And we've been successful in this because we've been doing these uncomfortable things. This has been keeping us safe. Uh, the same is going, uh, same is true in the school. Uh, and in many ways the church learned from the school in terms of procedure that the school's been very zealous about following all of the rules. And so even when there has been an exposure, there hasn't been a transmission. And so that's what we're after. The disease is around. People are picking it up, whatever. But what we what we don't want to happen is for that to be transmitted here amongst us. And so far, so good. I'm not, I don't want to start bragging, but so far, so good. All right. Uh, That's my COVID story and I'm sticking with it. Our, um, second reading this morning, is uh, the beginning of a long chunk that uh, is going to tell the story of the second missionary journey of uh, the Apostle Paul. Just to remind you of where we've been, in chapter 13 and chapter 14, we had the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul, probably, you know, 46, 47 A.D., uh, Paul and Barnabas are living in Antioch, and the church at Antioch sends them out. It's the first time in the history of the church that the church has supported and sent out uh, missionaries to spread the gospel uh, into a new area. The church had been spreading before that, but it had been spreading organically with people moving from city to city and bringing the story of Jesus along with them. In Antioch... Paul is still known as Saul, and so it's actually Barnabas and Saul who take the journey. And the first leg of the journey is into Cyprus, which is a very large island in the Mediterranean Sea. But something happens there in Cyprus where Saul becomes Paul and emerges as the lead. And so after that time, it's always Paul and Barnabas rather than Barnabas and Saul. They spend time together uh, there on the island of Cyprus. With them is a fellow by the name of John Mark, uh, who's a cousin of Barnabas. They travel there for a while. They return to the mainland, to Turkey. John Mark wants to go home. Uh, We don't know why. Scripture doesn't say why. And then Paul and Barnabas continue their missionary journey in Turkey. Okay, Many churches are planted 
in Turkey. Okay, this is the beginning of the expansion of the church into the pagan world. The church had grown up really for the first 10 years amongst Jews living in Palestine. Okay, And as the church encounters non-biblical cultures, it also encounters non-biblical ethics and non-biblical practices. And the church is faced with the question of what does it mean to be a Christian in this new culture? I mean, you understand that the gospel can be translated into any culture. We're used to seeing the gospel a certain way in our culture, but you can take the gospel and move it to Papua New Guinea, and the gospel is the gospel there too. The gospel critiques every culture that it's in. There are things about Western American culture that the gospel critiques, that the gospel says are wrong, that are false. Same is true in the culture in Papua New Guinea. Wherever the gospel goes, it critiques the local culture because the gospel alone is universally and at all times true. And so in spreading the gospel to this new uh, part of the world, there is this first time encounter between the biblical religion, the gospel, and the religions and the worldviews of the secular world. One of the consequences of this is the Council of Jerusalem. There are times in the history of the church when the leaders of the church get together to discuss contested matters of those times. And in every time there are contested matters. In the first century, the question was, do pagan Gentile converts to Christianity need to be circumcised? Everyone else in the church up to that time had been circumcised, okay? Because they were all just a bunch of Jews who had already been circumcised and then they became followers of Jesus Christ. But what about followers of Jesus Christ who hadn't been circumcised? Circumcision was a sign of the covenant. It was a sign of belonging to the family of Abraham. We as Christians are grafted into that family. And so maybe it looks like we as Christians also should be circumcised. That we should also follow the law of Moses. And so the church in Jerusalem considers the matter. Paul and Barnabas come down from Antioch. They go to Jerusalem. They confer with all of the apostles, with also with the elders. And apparently the whole congregation was there. I don't know, a couple thousand people. There probably was discussion over the course of a number of days, perhaps weeks, about how to handle this new situation in the church. And we have the ruling of the Council of Jerusalem. The ruling in our reading this morning will be called dogmata, where we get the word in English, dogma. So the dogma of the church is established by the apostles in this council. And one of the dogmas of the church is that people who practice homosexuality, people who are habitual fornicators... People who are adulterers are simply outside of the church. They're not part of the church. Okay, And so there there is a sexual ethic boundary to the church. To be part of the church is to observe a biblical sexual ethic. The biblical sexual ethic is actually very simple. Sex is permissible and desirable in the context of marriage between one man and one woman. Everything else is simply outside of the bounds and is outside of the church. People who practice that 
are simply outside of the church. And so that's the dogma of the uh, Council of Jerusalem, which is the first of the ecumenical councils. We see in this council uh, the assertion of the teaching authority of the apostles. Okay, And we also see that there is a necessity for agreement amongst the church universal. It isn't possible for the people in Jerusalem to have one practice and the people in Antioch to have another practice and still call themselves members of the same church. There's a recognition that the church is apostolic and that it's Catholic, namely that it's universal, okay? And so this this is what we see coming out of the Council of Jerusalem. That's in chapter 15. Where we are today is at the beginning of the second missionary journey. So between the Council of Jerusalem and where we are today, Paul and Barnabas go back up to Antioch, which seems to be their home base, and they're there for some time. And then around the year 49, we get to where we are. And so allow me to read now, uh, beginning at verse 36 in chapter 15. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers and sisters in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria, Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Let me just stop there for for right now. So the, the story is, is that John Mark is, is, a, is a cousin of Barnabas. He had joined uh, Paul and Barnabas uh, in the first part of the first missionary journey, uh, the time that they had spent in Cyprus together. After they leave Cyprus, they take a boat and they go back to the coastline of the mainland. They go back to Turkey, to Pamphylia. And at that point, Paul, uh, at that point, Mark leaves the crew. The scripture doesn't say why, but he's from Jerusalem and he goes back to Jerusalem. Now obviously this is an issue for Paul because it comes up later that when Barnabas suggests that John Mark join them again, Paul is not having any of this. Some kind of abandonment of the work of the church. John Mark is in, in the work of the church. He's been called uh, to this missionary journey and he bails out before the journey's over. Maybe it was too hard for him. Maybe uh, he had a girlfriend back in Jerusalem that he missed. Whatever the point is, is that John Mark does not demonstrate a steady character in the work that he's been called to. And Paul refuses to partner with him again because of this. There is a strong disagreement, a sharp disagreement over this issue, so much so that Paul and Barnabas have to go in different directions. Now, I think the essential 
teaching point to recognize in this chunk that we've read is that regarding the teaching of the church, the dogma of the church, regarding what it is that the apostles have agreed to in the council of Jerusalem, that everybody has to agree. There can not be any disagreement on that. There is no latitude of belief. You can't say, well, I disagree with what the apostles say, but I'm still a Christian. If you disagree with the, what, what the apostles say, you've simply said, I am outside of the church. Okay, So there is an agreement inside of the church on the essentials of the Christian faith. If you look on the back of your bulletin, you're going to see... Seven statements that are identified by our denomination as the essentials. Alright? Now throughout the church history, the church has attempted to give these essentials. The Apostles' Creed is one of those. Very early attempt to say, what is it that we believe as Christians? Okay? So, for example, if you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that He was raised from the dead, you are just not a Christian. You may say that you're a Christian... You may even be the pastor of a, of a church. But if you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that He was raised from the dead, you don't agree with what the teaching authority of the church has taught since the earliest days. You are outside of the apostolic community. So there has to be agreement on the essentials of the faith, but on the non-essentials, the church can take different paths. On questions of human wisdom, on questions of personal quirk. Maybe Paul was a difficult character to get along with and John Mark just didn't like him. Maybe there was some kind of personality clash. We don't know. Maybe John Mark did have a character failing and that he bailed out too soon. And Paul, in his human wisdom, thought, you know, it would not be wise to bring him along because we can't really count on him. Paul is choosing his team, and he's choosing his team according to human wisdom. And he and Barnabas have a sharp disagreement about what wisdom tells them in this circumstance. And that's okay. Paul and Barnabas agree on the teaching of the church. There's no question about what the essentials of the faith are. But there's disagreement here over the non-essentials. And what's important to notice here is that the disagreement over the non-essentials actually leads to an increase in evangelism. Barnabas and John Mark now go to Cyprus. Paul and Silas go off to Turkey. All of a sudden, the missionary journey has doubled. Because we can't labor together, let's double. All right? Now, we have a little homegrown version of that here. We've got two services with two different styles of worship. Some people are like, why do we have two different styles of worship? We're such a small church. Why can't we just all be together? We've got room enough for everybody in one place. Well, the reality is, is that historically in this church, there have been sharp disagreements over questions of style. Okay, style of music, style of preaching. Style of liturgy. And here's what I want you to see. Those disagreements are okay. 
There's nothing essential regarding musical style. All right, I would say, well, in fact, the problem would be if you thought that musical style was essential, then you're actually in an idolatrous relationship. Okay, if you believe that God can only be worshipped on a guitar or on an organ, then you actually are suffering from idolatry. Okay, and that would be a false teaching. But you can have different styles, you can have different ways of doing it, and in fact what happens and uh, is is that the work of the church multiplies rather than... Uh, uh, yeah, it multiplies, okay? So we can permit a diversity of opinions on things that are non-essential while maintaining a unity of opinions regarding the things that are essential. One of the, the motto of our denomination, and we did not invent it, I think it comes from St. Anselm or somebody like that, is that... Unity in essentials, liberty in non-essentials, and grace in all things. Okay, So in the essentials, we have to agree. And we're going to discuss this and confer on it uh, and, uh, all day long until we come to an agreement. Uh, and we have to respect those boundaries that are set by the apostolic teaching authority of the church. On the non-essentials, we need to be flexible. We need to let Barnabas and John Mark go their own way and to do it their own way. And we need to recognize that even though we're ministering in different ways, we're still part of that same church. Okay, Non-essential differences actually can lead to an increase in evangelism rather than uh, a reduction in evangelism. Now, it's a little mysterious exactly what happened with John Mark. If you're interested, you might want to go through uh, the New Testament and find up, find all the places where he shows up. I mean, he ends up actually having a very important career. He ends up being a, a colleague of the Apostle Peter and the author of the first gospel, the gospel of Mark. But... Paul seems to think that he suffers from some kind of character defect in being unwilling to be persistent in the work of the church through a time of difficulty. The church faces periodically difficulties. There are times when there would be an incentive to say, well, you know what, I, nah, I'm going home. This, I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to do this right now. Okay. And I think as Christians, we're called to be part of the church, to be involved in the work of the church when things are sweet and when things are hard. And I think that persistence and that pluckiness and that stick to itiveness is a Christian character. We don't want to be flighty Christians who show up when they're feeling good and disappear when they're feeling bad. We don't want to be flighty Christians who show up when things in church are humming but disappear when things are a little more rugged. Okay, The church will face hard times and we need to stick with the ministry of the church through those hard times. Maybe John Mark didn't. I'm not, not 100% sure. Okay. That's the first part. Let's take a look uh, at the verses beginning in chapter uh, 16. 
This is 16 verse 1. Paul also came to Derby and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decision that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Okay, you all know the name of Timothy. Timothy, the the young protege of Paul, who ends up being such an amazing missionary uh, uh, in his own regard. So Paul encounters uh, Timothy, uh, the son of a convert uh, at, at, at Lystra. Now, Paul had been through Lystra earlier, probably... Timothy's mother and Timothy were converted by Paul uh, during during the first missionary journey. Now we're, we've actually started the second missionary journey, and in the second missionary journey, Paul is retracing his route. And uh, in retracing his route, he he comes to Lystra, and there he meets Timothy, uh, who was well regarded by the other people in the church, and. Paul considers bringing him along as a companion in his journey. He's going to be going on. He's going to be traveling for a couple of years. Maybe Timothy wants to come along and be a co-laborer in this work. Well, there's a problem, or is there a problem? He is the son of a Jewish mother, but he's not circumcised. He's a follower of Christ. Well, what do we do with him? Well, this takes us back to the end of the first missionary journey and the council of Jerusalem. The decision of the council of Jerusalem was, you don't have to circumcise these converted pagans. Leave them be. Make sure that they observe biblical sexual ethics, but don't let them, but don't make them be circumcised. That's the teaching of the church. That's the decision of the apostles. That's the dogmata, to use the Greek word. And that's the word that shows up there in verse 4. So why does Paul have this boy, this young man, circumcised? First of all, think about that as an impediment to joining the church. On Easter, we're going to have at least one baptism here. People joining the church. If you've not been baptized and you want to join a Christian church, you have to be baptized. That's a sign of our entering the church. What if you had to be circumcised? How many of us would sign up? And yet Timothy submits to this. Why does Paul have Timothy circumcised? Now, before I answer that question, let me direct your attention to verse 4. If you take a look, it's there in your bulletins for you. You can take a look at it. So Paul has Timothy circumcised. And then in verse 4, we read, And they went on their way through the cities. Okay, they're traveling in Turkey. They delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. Well, 
those decisions include the decision that Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. So in one verse, Scripture tells us that Paul had Timothy, Gentile, circumcised. And in the next verse, it says that Paul and this newly circumcised Gentile are preaching to people in the cities, Oh, you don't have to be circumcised. It seems like there's some kind of conflict going on here. Two things I want to note first is that the term observance means a habitual practice. A habitual practice. Now, when we were talking about the uh, Council of, of Jerusalem, one of the things that I wanted to make sure that we understood very clearly is that the church is defining its boundaries in terms of habitual practice. It is the case that all Christians sin, okay? Just because we come to faith in Jesus Christ doesn't mean that our sin stops. But our relationship to sin has changed. Before our conversion, we celebrated our sin. We marched in parades about our sin. After we've been converted, now we're struggling with our sin. Now we're asking for deliverance from our sin. Now we are in a daily battle with sin. And we still sin sometimes. Our relationship to sin before our conversion is a habitual relationship. And our relationship to sin after our conversion is one of warfare and conflict. This habitualness has to do with this word observance here. They delivered to them for observance, for habitual obedience, we might call it. The dogmata, the decisions that have been reached by the apostles. To be a follower of Jesus Christ is not merely a matter of believing certain facts about Jesus. I think it's good that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that He was raised from the dead. But we also know that Satan believes that too. Okay? So, our salvation is not merely a matter of the things that we believe. It's belief that also results in a practice. This habitual practice, this observance. Okay? So, Paul is preaching. Obviously, he's preaching the gospel, which is the path of salvation, but he's also teaching them that to be part of the family of God means an observance of what it is that the apostles taught. Part of that involves a kind of a moral law as well. So back to the conflict. Paul has Timothy circumcised, even though the council of Jerusalem said he doesn't have to be circumcised. And then and Paul immediately takes this circumcised Gentile with him on an evangelism tour where he's telling other people, oh, you don't have to be circumcised. How crazy is this? Why? Well, take a look in verse 3. Paul took him and circumcised him because now here's the reason the Jews who were in that place in those places for they all knew that his father was a Greek he was circumcised because of the Jew in those places who all knew that Timothy was a Greek I think what's going on here is that Paul knows that 
Timothy's uncircumcisedness creates an impediment to the gospel, to his ability to preach the gospel to Jews. Okay, so a Jew is not going to spend time in the company of an uncircumcised man. Maybe he would meet him in the marketplace. He's certainly not going to sit down to dinner with him. He's not going to have a conversation with him. He's not going to touch him. All right. And so this lack of circumcision becomes an impediment to the gospel. And think of Paul's willingness and Timothy's willingness to remove every impediment to the gospel. What is it in our lives, what is it in our cultural practices that stand between us and the people that we've been called to preach the gospel to? It's a complicated question. Maybe it was very clear cut for the Jews there in in that time. But there may be situations where how we're living or what we're doing or what we're wearing would be an impediment to people hearing the gospel from us. You could imagine, for example, if you are going to be an evangelist to Muslims and you don't practice certain customs that they find normal and respectful, you're not going to get an audience. Now, as a Christian, you're free to not practice those things. But as a Christian, you're also called to love that person, and so you will practice those things just to remove that barrier between you and that other person. Alright? Now, we live in a very complex society where there are a thousand and one different cultures all around us, little micro-cultures. But I think it's important for us to think about as we are trying to communicate the gospel to other people, what is it about me that might stand between me and this person and them hearing the gospel? What is it that I need to do? What adjustment do I need to make to that other person? I'm free. I don't have to make it. My salvation doesn't require that I make it, but the fact that I love this person and want to communicate with them obliges me, okay? Even if that means cutting off your foreskin, all right? The imperative of the gospel drives us to these extremes. There are people... who are on the road to hell and will perish if they don't hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no salvation outside of Christ. By God's providence, we have been blessed and gifted with a knowledge of that gospel. And with that knowledge of that gospel comes this imperative that we've got to share it with other people. Okay? Jesus didn't save you for you alone. I'm glad that he saved you. But he didn't save you for you alone. He saved you because there are other people in your orbit who need to be saved too. What are the impediments between you and that person that prevents them from hearing the gospel? I think there are impediments, for example, even between Protestants and Catholics. 
Think about the history of strife between these two communities. In some places that still goes on. It's a subtle question and you have to answer it for yourself. But your love for that other person has to drive your decisions about your behavior. It's more important than your freedom. You have freedom in Christ. You don't have to be circumcised. But sometimes you may need to be circumcised because the demands of love require it. Now, I just want to close uh, this morning by talking about what the gospel is. Sometimes we forget about this. I've been thinking about this because I had a very interesting conversation yesterday with uh, Ian Clark. You all know Ian Clark. He's he's uh, in seminary at um, Knox Theological Seminary, and I'm his uh, advisor. And he's having to write a paper on um, biblical ethics and and uh, secular worldview. And it was interesting talking to Ian because Ian is a man of the church who's raised in the church and um, lives his life in the church and is surrounded by Christians. And in some ways, he was unfamiliar with the with the ways of the world and how different the way of the world is from the way of the church and the, and the secular view being divergent from the biblical worldview. And in the course of that conversation, it became clear to me that there are so many fundamental assumptions that people outside of the church have that have to be corrected before they can come to a saving knowledge of Christ. I just want to review some of those with you right now. Maybe they seem overly familiar, but I don't think we can say them too often. Number one is, there is a God. Okay? Salvation and the church are not about a human wisdom or theory about how to live a good life. Salvation is not a human philosophy. Christianity is not a human philosophy. There is a God who is not us. He was before the world was, and then he created the world. Number one, there is a God. Number two, everything that you see was made by that God who you don't see. And he made you. And God had a plan and a design for all of creation. And he has a plan and a design for you. God also is a moral God. He has a law. He believes that some behaviors are good and some behaviors are evil. And he reveals that to us. Sometimes he reveals it to our hearts. Okay, People who don't have the privilege of being raised with the law of God sometimes still know what right and wrong are. Those of us who've been blessed by a life in the church have it from the Word of God. That's not a human invention. That's the law of God. Ethics and morality are not based on human invention. Obviously, humans have other ideas about what is ethical and what is good. But God has His own standard. And every person has an immortal, eternal soul. At the end of this life... We will immediately stand in the presence of Jesus Christ, who is the author, not only of the law, but of our salvation. And in that encounter, we will have to give an account of our life. We will be judged. We'll be judged fairly. We'll be judged according to God's law, not according to whatever law that we invented or voted for. We'll be judged according to God's law. 
And the only hope for salvation in that situation is by pleading the mercy of Christ. The problem is, is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one lives a good enough life to meet God's standard. So all of us have been born on the highway to hell. God has offered an off-ramp to a different path, the path of salvation. He's got a little sign saying, this is the way, go this way, exit here, get on this other path. It's narrower. Not everyone's going to find it. But it's offered, and it's offered freely. When we get on that path by faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Christ becomes our righteousness. And then we are judged based on Christ's life, not my life. If I'm judged based upon my life, whoop, I'm doomed. God, in all his fairness, would condemn me forever. But by being united to Christ in faith, I receive the righteousness of Christ freely given. And that becomes my record. And I'm judged based on that. I only stand in the confidence of the gospel because of what Christ has done for me. Not because I'm a good person. Those of you who know me know that it's the case. All right. And I can be confident in life and in death because I know that I've been united to Christ through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So I want to ask you if you have done that yourself. All too often we either deny that there is a God or we deny that there's a judgment or we fool ourselves into thinking, well, you know, I'm a pretty good guy. There's certainly worse people than me. And yet the witness of Scripture is uniform that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is going to be justified by their own actions alone. We can only be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. That faith in Jesus Christ is not merely a matter of affirming the, you know, the Apostles' Creed. It also is a matter of committing in a habitual way to a certain practice in your life. Okay, when we're converted, we turn from this life and we turn to this life. Doesn't mean that we're going to live this life perfectly, but there's a turning. I was living this way and now I'm going to live this way. Alright? Faith in Jesus Christ allows me to make that turn and then the presence of the Holy Spirit allows me to walk in that turn. You won't do it flawlessly, but there's a different direction in your life. Have you been converted? Have you made that choice? Have you intentionally said, yeah, I was heading in the wrong way. I was heading to hell. My hope is in Jesus Christ. Let me turn it around. Okay? If you've never done that, I invite you to do it today. Okay? I invite you to do that today. So I'm just going to spend some time in prayer together. I want you in your privacy of your heart to meditate on this question. No one, no one knows your heart, but you know your heart and you know where you stand with God and the Holy Spirit will reveal your needs to you and he will give you the faith that you need. So let us pray. Father God, we just call on you this day. We thank you for brother Paul and brother John Mark. Thank you for Barnabas and Silas. Lord, we're sorry about the fight they had amongst themselves. But we thank you that because um, of their disagreement that they went out and preached the gospel to more people. And Lord, we've heard that because of them. Lord, we've heard that 
you are God and that we are not and that Jesus is your son and that he died for our sins and that he lived a perfect life. Maybe we've heard it a thousand times. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us whether or not we stand in the light of that truth. Let us know where we stand with you, Lord, before we face you on Judgment Day. Lord, let us be ready for that day by receiving you as Lord and Savior today. Father God, we know that we can't follow you on, on, under our own strength, but that you have to give us that faith. So we pray for the faith today. Lord, help our unbelief. Lord, we ask that you would be honored and glorified in our lives, and we pray that you would forgive us of all of our sins in the past. We pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and let us live lives that are honoring to you, that are in conformity to your law, that are blessing to the world, and that bring you praise. We pray that for our own good, and we pray it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.